Hello, friends, and welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. A couple quick announcements before we jump in. First of all, the Theology in the Raw Israel trip, October 11th through the 21st of 2020. If you would like to go on this trip, the cost is $2,900. It's first come, first serve. If you want to go on the trip or you want to inquire about the trip, you can email chris at prestonsprinkle.com. That's C-H-R-I-S at prestonsprinkle.com. Again, it's first come, first serve. The first 40 people who send in their $100 to secure their spot are going, and spots are filling up pretty quickly. So if you would like to go on an amazing theology in the raw um, Israel trip, my brother-in-law, Benjamin Foreman, Dr. Benjamin Foreman, is going to be leading the trip. He's been living in Israel for 15 years. He's been touring people around the, around the land more than Moses has. That's actually true because Moses never even got into the land. But anyway, he maybe as much as Joshua has. Yeah, he's been touring people around the land of Israel longer than Joshua did. I don't know if that's true. It just sounds kind of cool. Anyway, if you want to inquire about the trip, chris at prestonsprinkle.com. Again, the dates are October 11th through the 21st. Also, um, my spring speaking schedule is... Uh, very stacked. So let me just read off a few dates here. Uh, February 9th and 10th, I will be in Orange County, February 9th and 10th, Orange County, uh, at two different churches um, that I, um, I'm blanking on the first church. No, let me just look it up here. Um, I will be at um, Branches Church, Huntington Beach, that's on the evening session. That's February 9th. And then the all day leaders session on the 10th. I will be at Rock Harbor Church in Orange County. Uh, March 5th and 6th, I will be in Greeley, Colorado. That's Northern Colorado in Greeley. Uh, March 10th and 11th, I will be in Nashville. Uh, evening event on the 10th and an all-day event on the 11th. March 15th, I will be in Seattle, Washington for an evening event. April 30th, I will be in Philadelphia and uh, April 30th and May 1st in Philadelphia. And there's a few other events that are scattered throughout there. If you want to register, you have to go to centerforfaith.com and register for these events. And again, uh, some of them do sell out. So if you do want to attend uh, one or some or all of these events, come be a uh, like a groupie or whatever and just travel the country with me and talk about sexuality and gender. That'd be awesome. Uh, If you want to attend, you can go to centerforfaith.com and just go to the events page and you can look at more details about the events and also register. My guest for today is a good friend of mine, one of my favorite people in the world, one of my favorite writers, one of my favorite pastors, just an all-around great dude. His name is John Mark Comer. He's a pastor of Bridgetown Church in Portland. He's been the pastor of a mega church. Um, he has been through uh, seasons of burnout, and uh, which is one reason why he wrote his most recent book called The Ruthless elimination of hurry. We had a fantastic conversation about uh, this topic, about being overly busy and how it can destroy your soul. We talked about uh, politics. We talked about culture. We talked about all kinds of fun stuff. So please welcome to the show for the second time, the one and only John Mark Comer. Okay, I am here with my good friend, John Mark Comer. John Mark, thanks for being on 
the Al Raw for the second or maybe even third time, at least second time. You know, I think second, yeah, I know. You don't love me quite enough for a three. <laughs> we'll see if I pass. I made it on a second time. That's a step in the right direction. I don't know if any, I don't think I've had anybody on three times. I've only had a handful, uh, small sure. handful of guests sure. that I've had on sure, twice. Sure, Francis Chan has been on 19 times. <laughs> He's been I mean, on once. On. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's, why don't we start with your book? Because, um, I mean, this is a top, what what I love about your writing is every book you write is just, it's, it seems to be just a piece of you. Um, would, would that be true? I mean, you you don't just write a book like, Oh, here's an interesting topic. Like it seems to be just something that you're, you're living, you're breathing, you're, it's keeping you up at night. You're thinking through it. Maybe you've had a life experience that has significantly, you know, uh, played a foundational role in even producing this book. And I can imagine this book probably has a lot of that in it. Yeah, I mean, this one, for sure, more than the other ones before it. And this is really my first kind of foray into writing about spiritual formation, which is really what I want to devote the next decade or two to as a teacher and writer. And, you know, the the odd thing and the beautiful thing about spiritual formation is it's a little bit different than Bible and theology, though there's a ton of Bible and theology in it, in that you can't teach it in the abstract. You have to live it because it's all about, like, how do we actually follow Jesus and grow and mature? And how, do, how does the Bible and theology interact with our human psyche and the human condition and our wounding and our hurt and hurry and the iPhone and busyness and all of the stuff, you know? Yeah. So um, like I can exegete Ephesians chapter two without like really bringing a ton of my life through it. Now that's not the way to do it and blah, 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 but you can, as you know, but I can't like, teach on you know how to actually grow and expand the soul into christ likeness without living that you know so there's something beautiful about spiritual formation that forces me to live it first you know i was reading a a commentary on saint john of the cross and um his work around the dark night of the soul and gerald may his interpretation of saint john was that he started with experience and then he wrote poetry and then last he wrote commentary on his poetry his experience oh wow and that was kind of the flow of experience poetry slash prayer writing commentary yeah and that's i mean that's really kind of the flow right you know what i mean as a teacher like you experience something with god and at first it's poetry and mystery and prayer and you're not even sure and then eventually you figure out how to articulate it you know to the best of your ability so the book again is uh, the ruthless Elim- elimination of hurry, which is a brilliant title. Did, did, did you? Because I'm in the middle of coming up with the title for my forthcoming book, and it's yeah. it's really hard. I feel like I can recognize a good title, oh, but they come up the with worst, one's tough. Huh? Did you I come know. up with this, or did the publishers, or both, or? Uh, actually, I think this was my credit has to go to my agent. I think the original title was like "Hurry: The Great Enemy of Spiritual Life," and and he was like, "No, that's lame." And. Uh, <laughs> And, but I was using that quote, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. That's mm-hmm. the beginning of the book from that quote from Willard. And so I think my agent said, Hey, why don't we just, you know, take that as the title. Just, just uh, not last Sunday, but the week before my pastor got up and this was one of his four kind of, he drew like a, you know, like a, a, a an X through the whiteboard or whatever. And says, here's four areas of kind of spiritual formation or, or just, just Christ, the Christian life that I really want us to 
think about this year. And, and one of them was, and even said the, the ruthless elimination hurry, it held up your book, read a bunch of quotes from it and it's just really? blowing him oh, away. Yeah. He's just oh, like, this oh my is, gosh. Oh, what a gift. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, and he told everybody go buy this book. So <laughs> it's a small church. Look at your, great. You just paid for one kid's college. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> so what, what is it that led, what, what's, What's your story? What what happened in your journey that ultimately kind of led to this book? There's got to be a story here. I mean, I know there is because you told me yeah. about it a little bit, but <laughs> I mean, there's yeah, there's a ton of backstory. I don't want to like give you the four hour autobiography, but I mean, I guess the short version to make it as concise as I can is I hit a spot um, as a follower of Jesus and as a pastor about you know seven eight years ago now where I was into decade three, I was in my early thirties and um, I had really stalled out in my spiritual formation. If you want to use that language. And all I mean by that is my growth and maturity into a person who is loving and joyful and peaceful like Jesus. And, um, and I had this experience of where I really felt, you know, we use the language of spiritual growth. I don't think most people even know what they mean by that. But, you know, I define spirituality in the Christian tradition as our capacity to receive and give love in relationship to God and to others. So by that definition, I felt like I was growing at a spiritual level, like my capacity to receive and give love in relationship to God and other people was growing through my kind of high school, college, 20s. And then, you know, about my mid-20s, I felt I just hit this, like, I felt like I just hit this plateau and I stalled out in my growth. I was still a Christian. I was still following Jesus. I was still you know, practicing my spiritual disciplines. But the moment that my apprenticeship to Jesus hit up against some of the deeper stuff, some of the, you know, you know, Enneagram is the fad right now, but that kind of stuff, like the ingrained habits of sin in my person that are literally my genetic code and stretch back to my great, great grandfather, you know, Mm -hmm. and the stuff of our culture that is just the assumptions I carry to the table and, and wounding from past, like the moment it hit all of that stuff, it's like all of a sudden I was banging my head against a wall, you know? Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you think about, so I, so I had this frustrating experience where for a number of years, I just felt stalled out. And then we had planted a church. It grew crazy fast. And all of a sudden I was the lead pastor of the mega church. And I was under an enormous amount of stress and, you know, workaholic, insane hours. And then the iPhone comes in and now I'm distracted all the time and digital addiction is a thing. And so then actually, I, I felt that I began to regress, not progress, just due to emotional unhealth, distraction, exhaustion, burnout, anxiety, you know. And so there was a real like kind of early midlife crisis, of not so much a crisis of faith as much as a crisis of discipleship. Like, mm-hmm. what I'm not, this is not, if, you know, and once you get to your early 30s, you have enough time under your belt to kind of chart a trajectory for your character forward a few decades and imagine yourself at 40, 50, 60, 70. And, you know, and most 20 somethings don't even think about that. And uh, you get to a certain age where all of a sudden it starts to loom on the horizon. And it was really like sobering, you know, a vision of myself at 50, 60, 70 was not, was not a compelling picture for me. So there was that, and then there was at the same time, there was a bit of a pastoral crisis along parallel lines where I began to realize that my church was full of, not my church, but the church I was a part of was full of people like me, you know, that all sorts of people who, you know, you could 
to put it in sports language, had some early wins uh, when they first started following Jesus, but then stalled out the moment that discipleship hit the really deep stuff. Hmm. And I mean, think about the stories that we often tell in church and just in our communal circles of healing and transformation. They're often like early in the journey stories. They're often like, I was addicted to whatever, or my life was a disaster. And these are beautiful stories. It's not to to negate them or discount them. We rarely tell stories about like over 30 years, Jesus made me a patient person, (laughs) you know, or um, God radically healed me of a father wound over, you know, 15 years of patiently sitting with that in Jesus, you know? So um, I began to just really realize that something in the way that I was following Jesus and the way that we as a church were following Jesus was not right. And that's a a much longer conversation. That's what brought me to spiritual formation. That's what brought me to really beginning to ask the question, how do people change? Um, Because spiritual growth is a form of change. So you can't grow if you don't have some kind of a working theory of change. And I think everybody has a working theory of change, but in my experience, for most people, it's subconscious, not conscious, and it's inherited, not intentional. So you just kind of grow up in your church tradition or socioeconomic tradition, and you have some kind of a working theory of this is how I think I grow and mature to become more like Jesus as I follow him. And it might be really good, and it might be really bad, and it might be a mixed bag, Mm -hmm. but I'd never even thought about it. It was just an unquestioned assumption that in my kind of evangelical upbringing, well, yeah, you just kind of go to church on Sunday, you read your Bible and pray in the morning. Prayer was defined as intercessory prayer. You tithe and then you just work really hard at it. And, you know, we would say rely on the spirit, but that was at a cliche level. Nobody ever, Mm -hmm. I never had any grasp of what that meant or how you actually do that practically or how it actually works or, you know, all that kind of stuff. And of course, those are all good things that are Mm -hmm. still very much in my rule of life and my muscle memory. And I very much am for, but those things often do not deal with the deep subterranean Mm -hmm wounding of the soul and, and, and just brokenness of the soul, you yeah. know? So that's the, all of that brought me to spiritual formation in general, which in turn brought me to Dallas Willard, which in turn brought me to his famous line about hurry, which was a watershed moment in my life realizing, Oh wow. Hurry is kind of the root issue underneath all of these other issues in my formation and my health and my life. What's the quote? So the quote is, um, so the back, well, the quote is, hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day, and you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Oh, okay. That's the quote. Oh, so that's yeah. where the title came from. Okay. Yes, exactly. And the story comes, it's a great backstory. It, it comes, it's a line, actually, it's not in one of his books. It's a line that he said to John Ortberg when Ortberg was actually on staff at Willow Creek Community Church. This is quite a many years ago, late nineties, I want to say, and was getting kind of sucked into just the busyness and hurry and overload of life and mega church culture and called up Willard and basically said, what do I need to, you know, in his own language, what do I need to do? And Willard was just quiet and said, you need to ruthlessly eliminate hurry. He identified mm-hmm. hurry as like the issue underneath all of the other issues. And that to me was so striking. I'm live in Portland again, like crazy far left, uber secular super post-Christian city, and I'd never thought of hurry as really the great threat and challenge even more than any of the other stuff. And you felt that in your life, you were just going from thing to thing to thing. I mean, I was reading on, on the Amazon page of your book, 
Um, I, I got to read this. This is so, it, it was hilarious. So, um, so you said it's Sunday night, 10 p.m., head up against the glass of an Uber, uh, too tired to even sit up straight. I taught six times today. Yes, six. The church I pastor just added another gathering. That's what you do, right? Make room for people. I want to, I want to, I want to come back to that, that, that I got some thoughts and questions about that. Um, I made it until about talk number four. I don't remember anything after that. I'm well beyond tired, emotionally, mentally, even spiritually. Um, when we first went to six services, I called up this mega church pastor in California who had been doing six for a while. How do you do it? I ask easy. He said, just think about just, <laughs> it's just like running a marathon once a week. <laughs> Okay, thanks. Click. Wait. <laughs> He's this total jock, like athlete kind of guy. Yeah. Isn't a marathon really hard? I, I, I cracked up at that. I, well, oh, it keeps going on and on and on. But I mean, <laughs> I'm like, oh, easy. Once a week marathons. Yeah, great. Who, who awesome. runs a marathon once a week? <laughs> once a week. Uh, yeah, and the funny thing is, so I immediately got into long distance running, which actually really did help for that season of my life. And he had an affair and totally disappeared from church. Really? <laughs> yeah, wow. like that, that, that does not bode well for my future, you know? Yeah. But that was a good sobering moment for me. What, was it, um, here, here's a question I ask myself sometimes, and for, well, for you, was it the, the number of hours you were clocking? I mean, were you working 60, 70, 80 hours a week? If you add up anything that, that, that can be considered work from a pastoral perspective was it the number of hours or was it simply the 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 kinds of things you were doing or both and yeah definitely both and it was uh yeah it was definitely too many hours um but then it was also me attempting to be somebody i'm not and you know i think to operate outside of uh my calling and what i have grace for and i had to learn the hard way i'm not a leader of leader of leaders apostolic kind of, you know, um, per, that's just not who, that's not how I'm wired. You know, it's not what I'm, I don't think it's what God made me for. Parker Palmer has that great line about how burnout isn't always a function of giving too much. Um, it's often a function of giving something that's not yours to give in the first place, which oh, is yeah. why people can work 40 or 50 hours a week and still burn out. Because, you know what I mean? And yeah. other people can work 90 hours a week or not 90 hours, but can work 70 hours a week and be full of life and energy and creativity and passion. A lot of it has to do with what your time is going to. Because you and I, I think, are almost the exact same. Like you're a three, right? On Instagram or? I'm not, actually. Oh, you're not? Five? Mm -hmm. I actually, I feel like such an idiot, but I'm, I'm that's a, this is a total rabbit trail, but I, I'm, I'm, I have mixed feelings about the Enneagram okay, okay, and I, I, I'm not sure that I, I feel weird. I feel like totally pretentious saying, I don't want to say my number, but I don't want to say my number. <laughs> no, it's fine. So I, I thought you, so I'm not, I don't know much about the Enneagram. I've never even taken the test. I think I'm a three. Yeah. But I don't know. People say different things, but so, I mean, you're, you're, you're very much intro, introverted. Um, yes. But like 100%. a lot of pastors that are introverted, you're really good on stage. You can speak to thousands, move the crowds, but put you in a small group and say, all right, lead these 10 people in a, you'd probably just wither up and die. Like that's how I, <laughs> I, I would much rather be on a stage in front of 2000 people than in a room with eight people. Yeah. Or one-on-one -on -one doing like spiritual yeah. direction yeah. or having a nice <laughs> glass of wine in a deep conversation. No. That, I'm, I'm, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> but you're like writing, reading, thinking, reflecting, doing deep work uh, on an intellectual level. 
Yeah, I love that. Yeah. And I love the one-on-one -on -one spiritual direction kind of pastoral work, but you know, as long as it's not like, you know, 50 hours a week, but the, all the like running of a community, the community organization, yeah. management of a staff, like none of that is yeah. my jam. <laughs> and you were doing that, right? That's what it means to be a megachurch pastor in the 20th century. Yeah. I mean, we had like 93 people on the payroll at its Zenith. And, you know, at that point, you're not a teacher. You're a, you know, you're an executive director of a nonprofit, which is great. I'm not against that at all. That's right. just not what I want. So do. What, what do you do now? What's your schedule like now? I'm curious. Oh, the million dollar question. Yeah. Like what do you practically? Uh, you know, it's, yeah. it's in flux. It keeps changing, you know, and we're, we keep us way. I'm in a totally different role now. And um, Sundays are still a pretty long day. Nothing like they used to be, but you know, we have three gatherings and the last one's not till seven o'clock at night. So Sunday's a kind of a long day, and which means Monday's a bit of a recovery day. But most of the time in the mornings, I just um, pray and read and work on my sermon study right until about 11.30 or 12 if I can swing it. And my phone's totally off. I don't look at my phone till about middle of the day. And then I'll exercise and then do kind of pastoral leadership stuff in the afternoons, you know, meetings and stuff like that. So it's a little bit more complex than that, but what's your Basically day that. do you have one or two days off friday saturday saturday only, yeah or? friday saturday off um friday's day off so i do all the work i don't get paid for on that day and sometimes do author stuff and or run errands or just read if i don't have anything going on and then friday night and all day saturday is like deep sabbath rest phone mm -hmm. off around the table family don't go out it's just like deep deep mm -hmm. rest and delight so what do you do um the ruthless elimination of hurry. What about somebody that say, actually, let, let me, let me really rethink. So I asked the right question. Uh, much of the, I haven't read the book yet. I'm not yet. I'm, I'm going to, um, it seems like it's born out of your pastoral experience, right? And, and it's, are you speaking mainly to people in ministry? I mean, obviously you're going to say what I was saying, it applies to everybody, but what about say the, I don't know, the, the, the mechanic that his wife left him and he's trying to raise three kids and, and he's got to work an extra night job. Like, so I was raised by a single mom who had to work, you know, 14, 18 hours, 16 hours a day to put food on the table and just yep. to, to barely, you know, like we were really poor just um, to get by. Yeah. Yeah. And if I, I could imagine if she, I don't, and I don't even know again, I, if, but I, 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 let me assume if she read your book, she might be a little frustrated saying, well, it must be nice, you know, like <laughs> yeah, um, where you can kind of like, not do this or not do that, or I'm not going to work too hard today or take this day off. She's like, I, I physically can't, can't do that. Yeah. Um, does what you're saying, is it very contextual to like people in ministry or, or is it? It's yeah. not at all contextualized to people in ministry. I mean, okay. that's my story. So I tell right. a little bit of autobiography, which comes through that. But no, it's not remotely uh, contextualized or geared at pastors or ministry leaders. It is to a degree geared at middle class and up people in, you know, kind of the digital age or in metropolitan centers. Absolutely. Okay. But my experience has been a little bit different than what most, a lot of people go to the hypothetical scenarios and your mom is not a hypothetical scenario, but that's also a different era, pre iPhone era, mm -hmm. you know? And, um, so people will go to the hypotheticals, but in, in real life, my experience, and again, this is just anecdotal, but has been that busyness is like across every socioeconomic factor mm -hmm. that you could possibly imagine. Like if you just ask people, how are you doing 
most people say, oh, I'm good, but busy. And I hear that from everybody. I hear that from men. I hear that from women. I hear that across the ethnic spectrum. I hear that from urban to suburban to rural. I hear that across generations. I hear that from like super hard driving lawyer people and down to like part-time students that are like playing video games 30 hours a week, you know, and everybody that I talk to is busy. And often, you know, we go to the hypothetical scenario of the poor, and that is a very legitimate thing. And I would say two things there. One, most of those on the lower socioeconomic end of the bar, you know, thing, the problem is not too much work. It's not enough work. That is most problems there. And um, two, those people, for the most part, are not reading my books or listening to your podcast. I mean, you know the stats on podcasts. The average podcast listener makes $81,000 a year and has a bachelor's degree. So, you know, the kind of people that are yeah. reading a book about hurry and listening to a podcast are, are likely not the kind of people like your mom who are yeah. just trying to get to the end of the week. And they probably don't need to be told to slow down. Right, they right. need to be told, like, how do you cultivate, you know, how do we, how do we help you and how do you get through yeah. it? But for people with an iPhone, for people who are middle class and up, for people in any kind of a, even close to a metropolitan setting, Man, it's just like the the crushing and crippling, you know, I think, I think. So, yes, in that respect, this book is not written for, you know, it's not written for people in the developing world. It's not written for people that are, you know, um, really on the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum. And I absolutely be honest about that. Yeah, yeah. No, that's good. It's super helpful. Um, Do you, you, and a lot of this is just personal, too, because I'm constantly... But how to say battling? I don't know. Like, um, I feel like my life, especially my ministry life, has been one of like seasons of like, you know, there, there was one season where I was trying to pay off just a pile. I mean, a a pile of student debt. And yeah. So I was working, you know, gosh, yeah. Some some days I'd work eighteen hours a day, get up at six, work till one, two in the morning, um, because I wanted to pay off this debt in five years. You know. Yeah. Um, and then now in the last, I would say, four or five years, there's a lot more traveling and speaking. I would say uh, maybe two years ago, my family, maybe three years ago, we really became vigilant as a family to, to figure out, okay, it seems like traveling and speaking is kind of wrapped up into what I'm doing. I can find a different calling and, and we can go that route. But um, in terms of what I'm doing now, how can we... Um, figure out a manageable way to do that. So then I, I, we become much more ruthless, um, at, you know, for me taking time off before I travel, taking time off after I don't hit the desk right when I get home the next morning, Uh, I'm taking kids on with my trips and making it integrated with the family and, and I have the freedom to be able to do some of that. We've also built in like, um, a really long vacations. Like spring is a, is a, is, is a lot of traveling, man. It's a lot. Um, Come June, we're my whole family's out of the country. Like we're gone. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I don't even take a computer. Nothing. I mean, it's. I might take. Yeah. I might check email once in a while. But it's like I am. I. I, I need to physically leave the country <laughs> to to just. <laughs> it's like one big brain fart, you know. Um, yeah. And I, And now, even at the fall, sometimes we plan in something if we can if we can afford something there. Um, and the summer can be pretty low key. Like I don't travel during the summer, so the summer is really a. Um, a long yeah. I'm working, you Wonderful know, but it's, time. it's, you know, it's normal hours. It's, it's in my basement here. We, we take time off to go hiking and stuff. So, um, I'll, I'll, my, I guess my question is, 
What is my question? <laughs> what would you, I mean, count, pastor me now. I mean, just let's, I mean, I know that we're, we're talking in front of thousands of people right now, but I, I would genuinely love some pastoral counsel. Like, um, it, 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 my explanation, does that sound pretty good? Or what kind of advice would you have? No, I, mean, I think or? it sounds like you're on the wisdom journey. And, you know, obviously most people don't have the life of a, of a traveling speaker and theologian podcaster guy. So I think that you're very much on the journey and you're learning how do I, you know, it's one thing like how do I pay off school debt quick is a different question than how do I maintain fruitfulness and faithfulness over 50 years and how do I operate in love and in joy and in wisdom and how do I not, you know, lose the plot line along the way? That's a very different question, you know, and they're both appropriate questions for different seasons of life. And, you know, at some point you realize that hustle is just, I mean, it'll just, it'll, it'll wear you down to the bone. I think my only, so I basically, I would just say, yeah, that's great. sounds like you're on the journey. That's wonderful. All good things. I would just say, what would it look like for you and your ministry to recognize hurry and busyness as one of the primary problems that people are facing in their apprenticeship to Jesus? And one of the main, I'm convinced that one of the main reasons that Millennials and Gen Z are being so colonized by post-Christian secular assumptions and worldview is simply due to busyness, phone, digital distraction, mm-hmm. lack of time to just sit in prayer, sit in quiet, sit in the scriptures, be in community with other followers of Jesus. All of this takes a lot of time. You know, you're about to launch this whole beautiful course around sexuality and whatever. That takes time. Yeah. People who don't have time won't do it. And even people who do have enough time to do it, but don't actually have time to sit in it and process it and pray about it and discuss it with friends and live it out. Like, so I would just encourage you just to begin to take that at, and put your pastoral eyes on that as you do your itinerant work. What would it look like? I mean, Henry now, and I just reread his little book on Christian leadership and he has this great paragraph. I remember the first time I read it, it was the main thing that stuck out to me too. And it's same thing the second time through where he talks about our job and he's talking about pastors and priests or spiritual leaders. And I think it very much would apply to you. Our job is the opposite of distraction, yeah. which is this great line. And then he basically just huh. talks about our job is to help people slow down and pay attention to the very real presence of Christ in their lives. And our question is not how do we keep people busy in our parish, but how do we how do we keep people from being so busy that they lose God in the busyness of life? You know? And if we're not doing it, we can't teach others to do it. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm like, yeah. as a leader, I am way less rah, rah, rah than ever. And more like, how do I even cultivate environments uh, when I travel or at our own church of quiet and of listening and of sitting and you know what i mean yeah. and helping people to actually i think it's one of the great gifts that the church can bring over the next few decades is actually creating places where people can get free of their phone and actually come yeah. back to god and their soul all right you got me inspired i'm gonna do something here online oh, okay you see that wait shoot not siri <laughs> All right, check this out, dude. In honor of you. Boop. Delete. Gone. (laughs) (laughs) What did you delete? I couldn't tell. Twitter for my phone. (laughs) Oh, good man. There you go. That's smart. It's funny. I deleted... um, I've done that before through a season, uh, but I I did... I deleted Facebook a while back for my phone, and I've never put it back on. I don't miss it. 
Yeah. But, but the 100%. one thing, Twitter is the one thing. I typically because I, I get a lot of my news from there, but then I, I'm looking at the news section in Twitter and it's all like, bro, you should not get your news from Twitter. You need to pay for news. <laughs> like seriously, if there's anything that you need to pay for, it's journalism. Well, 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 Twitter will just feed you into the digital algorithm that'll lock you in the echo chamber and the so, angry stuff and the stuff designed to clickbait you and get you to click yeah. on it. Like, man, you can't. It's the so nice bad. thing about Twitter is you can do it from your desktop. So, like, what you know, you can just schedule like, hey, every Thursday at three p.m. or whatever, yeah. I go on Twitter and I tweet and I answer questions and whatever, and then you're off. You know, Instagram's the harder one because it's on your phone. I've just pretty much decided. I'm going to go on like once or twice to Instagram and then I'm going to delete the app off of my phone and then just re-upload it huh. a week later or three days later or whatever. So it's just not there as a distraction. It's funny for me, Instagram, somebody talked me into getting it. They talk, it took them two years to wear me down. Finally, I got it like a year ago. Yeah. I hardly ever, I have to like remind myself to, to get on yeah. it and post something once a month. So that's, that's good. But Twitter is the <laughs> no, one for you me. you don't, that... Preston. You don't even have to be on it. You don't have to remind yourself. <laughs> well, I just read because... Jared uh, Lanier's uh, new book, 10 Arguments for Deleting Your Social Media Accounts Right Now. Really? It's a, it's a great read. Yeah, and a great, I mean, he's one of the Silicon Valley originals, huh. one of the founders. Really? And he's become a really big critic of social media and what he calls bummer the way that everything is you know designed for attention yeah the attention economy you know so for, for me so i i mean i run a nonprofit. that's my that's my job my livelihood and everything so yeah um and i don't want to and, and because it's a self-funded nonprofit, basically um if i want to have a marketing budget that means i have to like speak four extra times i have money you know it's like yeah, so i'm totally. like well i don't want to do that like I'll, twitter I'll just is your marketing on, budget what's that yeah Twitter is your marketing budget. Totally. So, but yeah, my point yeah. is, and this is this was the advice I got from others who aren't like hyper pro social media, but they're like, ah, for what you're doing, you kind of do need to be yeah. on these. I mean, you could not, but yeah. I mean, that's good. It is going to affect the very nature of what you're doing. So, um, but so then the question becomes, how do you use social media as a tool and not be yeah. used by it? You know, because it is intentionally. Des it's not designed for you to market the uh, Center for Faith and Sexuality, which is a great thing. It's designed to steal your attention and yeah. distract you and addict you in order to manipulate you through advertising from third party people to get you to vote a certain way, think a certain way and buy a whole bunch yeah. of products that you don't need. That's what it's actually designed for. You know, what's so funny you is have to find out a way to use it, not for what it's for, but for what it has the potential to do as a side yeah. effect. Which is social media. <laughs> well, and I feel like uh, for me, when it comes to Facebook and Instagram, it's a huge win, 100%. I'm not, I don't get distracted. I mean, maybe I would say maybe I probably check Facebook twice a month. Um, and maybe once every two months, I'll get sucked into like a couple of things for about 10 minutes. That's about it. But Twitter yeah. is the one that they, they, they've got me. They, they've conquered me. Yeah, they they've distracted you. me. But you're just getting it off your phone is such a huge win. And then if you just do it on your desktop and limit, even yeah. if you do it every day, like limit it every day, yeah. like every day at four, from four to four 30, I'm on Twitter yeah. or whatever. Awesome. That's great. What, what they don't realize is all the far left stuff that keeps being thrown at me is actually making me more conservative. Like, wait, I don't think that it, some of the far left movements I see are actually, in my opinion, going to put Trump back in the office because yeah, when you I criticize, agree, when, but when but Iran part of the shoots problem there is social media is designed to get the farthest extreme on either side yeah. and the most incendiary comments because that's how it drives user engagement.
Really? So you're not at, that's why, I mean, you've read all the, you read the more in common study, I'm sure, you know, last year and these studies keep no. coming out. There's Which another one's that? one. Which one's that? Uh, you can just Google it more in common. It was a great sociological survey done of the political landscape in America. And, uh, you know, there's a bunch of different surveys. Andrew Sullivan had a good survey of it. David Brooks had a great summary. I'm sorry, summary of it. And you can actually just go read the raw data. And basically, this is my interpretation of it, is that if all you had was Twitter, you would think that everybody was either a super woke, far left yeah. person or like an old, white, you know, evangelical racist. Yeah. And basically, <laughs> they said... That, that's, that doesn't remotely capture the reality. They broke America into six different political tribes. And they said that the far right, I think they called them the alt-right, and I think they called it progressive activists was the far left, yeah. are the two smallest groups. They're like 7% and 6% of the population, respectively. And they are also the whitest, wealthiest, yeah. and most educated of all groups. So in particular, the whitest, the only group that was whiter than progressive activists was the alt-right. <laughs> and so they basically concluded that pro progressive activists don't actually speak for most people of color, right. don't actually speak on behalf of the poor. If you actually look at what most brown people and black people and indigenous people like think at a political level, they're not represented by that. Contrary, I mean, the, the majority of them right. are not represented. So it, it basically just upended a lot of assumptions and at the same time made sense of like most people I meet aren't like crazy leftists right. or crazy alt-right racists. Most people are just like confused and in the middle and trying yeah. to get groceries for the weekend. What, how do you, you know? spell that again? The, the study? More in common. M-O-R-A-N? Yeah, more in common. Oh, more like, in common. More Like in... we have more in common. I think, I, think, I think the heart was like to show people – we actually aren't as divided as Twitter would make you think. We actually have more in common than you would imagine. I did remember coming across. See, I, I was looking for this actually because I, I kept hearing some podcasters refer to it, but they never gave the name. Um, that no, that's no, that's so funny because yeah, I see that anecdotally as well. I mean, you're in Portland, right? The most progressive activist city in America, and it's also extremely white, right? <laughs> Yeah, oh, 100%. It's the whitest big city in America. And people can afford to drink $5 coffees and go out to expensive restaurants and, you know, yeah. afford to eat healthy and all this. Well, some people can. Not The whole city's not, you right. know, it's not a super wealthy city, but yes. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about culture for a second. See, I mean, you and uh, Mark Sayers, thank you for introducing me to Mark. I had him on my podcast yeah, last summer. He's what a gem he dude. is. How can we get his? I mean, he would probably not want this, but I just want his voice to be heard by more people. And it seems like it's growing for sure. But um, yeah, that was really one of my main agendas with that podcast was the same. Like everybody needs to know about this guy and yeah. everybody needs to listen to what he's saying. Where do you see culture going? So right now it is so volatile and angry and polarized and, um, to me, I find it fascinating. Like, where, where in two years, five years, ten years, like, where are we going to be? Have you thought? Did you feel? Do you like to think ahead on kind of where, where are things going? Because it seems like we're at a tipping point with some some things right now. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. That's over my pay grade. That's a good question for Mark. You know, I, I'm not. Yeah, I don't know. I don't want to get anxious about it. I'm not optimistic. Really? I don't think that like I. You know, and I, I mean, it would be amazing. Maybe we'll get just a good moderate president in and everybody will calm down and Facebook and Instagram will turn over to a $10 a month 
different business plan that won't reward, you know, this kind of polarizing incendiary anger, anger and anxiety based, you know, social media thing and families will get back together and parent their children and parents will grow up, kids will grow up just feeling safe and at peace and clear in who they are. And, you know, but I just, it's hard for me to imagine that happening, you know? I do think that the far left will burn out. And, you know, it's funny, I was touring the local high school. We're trying to decide if we're going to put our, our oldest boy in the public high school or not. And we've sadly concluded that it's just, it's so far left. It's into indoctrination, not education anymore. So we're not going to, but I was touring his high school and there were Foucault, Foucault quotes on pretty much every wall. Who, if you don't know who that is, he's a French philosopher who basically was the founder of postmodernism and critical theory. So a lot of the stuff that we hear about postmodernism and power and intersectionality theory and all the critical gender theory and critical queer theory all kind of goes back to a lot of his his mind. He's a brilliant thinker. Yeah. But you know, at, he had this great line. I think it was him that was in quotes: "Where there's power, there is resistance." And I thought that's you know that's a really true statement. But now the power is in the hands of, you know, the secular leftist elites. And so there's going to be resistance. There's going, I think you're going to be, see a shocking Gen Z uh, swing back to the kind of Ben Shapiro's of the world, but it'll be a secular angry return. It's not like every, you know what I mean? Not like a return to kind, thoughtful, you know, Christians or whatever, I think. Well, I feel, yeah, I feel like, um, and maybe it's just the Hopefully world that I live in with that, with LGBT stuff, but there's such a, a grow. So LGB activism, marriage equality, all these things, um, you know, a lot of just the standard, standard liberals were all totally on board with, but yeah. now there, there's a lot of backlash against some of the extreme activisms, some surrounding the T um, yeah. and, and by people who are transgender. Okay. I mean, again, like you said before, there's a small number of loud activists that are kind of speaking for the whole group, but there's a growing number of, of even trans people, but also liberal people, gay people, especially lesbians who are speaking yes. out saying we fought for decades for certain human equality, but now there's certain radical activists that are just the, denying. I mean, they seem ideologically completely incompatible to me. Right. You know, yeah. what's well, it's, it's just denying basic rights. scientific categories. And it's like it's a lot of liberals, very liberal people are like this extreme activism has gone so far. And now we're shooting ourselves in the foot. Cause now we look like we're <laughs> flat earth, <laughs> flat earthers by denying some really basic things that the average human being is not going to go with, you know? Um, so I don't know. I, I even look at like, look at the growing number. It seems like a growing number of comedians who are kind of speaking out against hyper. Yeah, I've always said that some the good comedians are like secular prophets. They function, I think, in that prophetic role of critiquing yeah. culture from the inside. I mean, look at like Ricky Gervais's monologue. Did you see that? I didn't see that <laughs> oh, last week. At the, I was my jaws on the ground saying I, this is remarkable. He basically at the uh, what's it called the um, the Golden Globe Awards, the ones that nobody really cares about except for the people that attend. Um, he, in a very funny comedic way, pretty much laid into Hollywood and saying, "You guys are a bunch of moral hypocrites. When you come get your award, take your little award, sit down, shut up, don't make a political speech because nobody respects your kind of inconsistent morals. You know, you have no place to speak yeah. to people in the real." I was like, 
<laughs> oh my goodness. It's nice to hear that. I mean, me too, to me, was just such a fascinating moral thing. Like of all people, I mean, to have Hollywood attempt to advocate for right. like women's rights. I mean, I was just shocked. I'm like, like you literally have done more to degrade and objectify women than any right. community in history, you know, practically. That's probably an overstatement. But So I feel like there's more and more people that are finally starting to speak because I feel like the average person knows that. <clears throat> and now more and more people, or even Dave Chappelle, I don't know if you saw his recent thing. Yeah, it's but, like... but, but he got crucified, though, you know? I mean, and J.K. Rowling last week came out, you know, against, as a turf, you know, and yeah. came out against some, you know, there was a doctor in the U.K. that was fired because he refused to negate biological sex, right. and a woman that was fired, and so she spoke out on grounds of feminism, you know, and... And but then she is just crucified. But what you know? she, I, here's the thing: I think she was crucified. Yeah, but by I don't think she's actually crucified minority. by the majority of people. She's crucified by the internet, right? You know. So Ricky Gervais got crucified by certain journalists, but then he gained three hundred thousand followers on Twitter the next day. And so I think the, <laughs> the mass of popular, or even Dave Chappelle, you know, certain people were just horrified at his his skit. Yes. Um, but it is incredibly popular, and like, and this is where maybe going back to that that more in common study. I, I think that the the majority of people who might be very just liberal in, 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 in their morals or whatever um, are not really on board with this capital W woke kind of culture. Um, and I don't know if we need to make a distinction for our audience on, on, on that, but um. yeah. And unfortunately it blends together things like racial justice with sexuality, which is such a, right. And then it brings LG, you know, blends LGB stuff with T stuff. And so unfortunately all the stuff gets put together that are, that are really fairly different categories and I think yeah. should be thought about in some pretty different ways at times, you yeah. know? So, yeah, I mean, um, so yes, I definitely, I don't think things are going to keep going left, 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 left. But unfortunately the reactions that you're mentioning often tend to be angry, unkind and unchristian reactions. Mm -hmm. And so that's where I just, it's the ping pong effect that, you know, yeah. social media exacerbates because that's how social media drives engagement is through the ping pong thing. So you get this hard left, hard right and mocking each other and, you know, and I think more and more people are just confused, you know, and I mean, I mean, what is, what is all critical gender theory around trans stuff? I mean, it's, at the end of the day, it's just people are confused about what it means to be a human being, right? you know, and what the meaning and purpose of life is and what the telos of life is. Mm -hmm. These are central human questions that you cannot not ask, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, my dream is that um, I'm going to go back and reread Failure of Nerve this year with my elders and staff, which is Edward and Friedman's book. He's the one who coined the phrase, um, uh, non-anxious presence. So uh, there's two, two books that we're going to, I think, go back and reread as a staff this year. One is Coddling to the American Mind. I don't know if you read that last year. Best book of was, 2019, dude. Yes. Oh, so God. helpful. And, um, and then we're going to reread Failure of Nerve by Edwin Freeman. And just, I think, trying to ask the question, how do we as a community become a, you know, a community of stability and non-anxious presence mm -hmm. and love and wisdom in the middle of this culture that's falling apart? And that's where, you know, many have pointed out Patrick Deneen, Rod Dreyer, and many others have pointed out the parallels between our current cultural moment and kind of the fourth and fifth century AD and the decline of the Roman Empire. Yeah. As the, the Visigoths sacked Rome and the, the Roman Empire, which was once this bastion of order and wealth and 
you know, Pax Romana just began to fall apart and there was chaos and there were warlords and it was dangerous. And these monasteries, that's where the monastic movement came from. They became these centers of stability in a world gone mad. Like you go to medieval Europe and you'll see monasteries that have like turrets, you know what I mean? Like wall, they look like castles and turrets. And part of you thinks that's horrible. Like how far, how much do you have to lose the plot line from Jesus to like have a, a turret and a moat and a dungeon in your church, you know? But then you think about, so it's easy for me to judge, but then I think about how would I create a community of Jesus that does, you know, that is a bastion for the common good if I was in a failed state like Mogadishu or the Congo or Syria right now? You would probably put up some walls and lock them. You know, I mean, you probably have to have somewhere to put people that are dangerous, you know? And it's like, it's easy for me to judge, but then I think, oh man, like what? There's something here, you know? And so I wonder, I'm not saying we should build castles, but I do think that whatever the future is for the church, it's a neo-monastic, kind of anti-digital, intensely relational, intensely disciplined, discipleship-based kind of rigorous community. And my hope is that it operates as some kind of a, a center of stability in a world that is increasingly kind of gone mad. That's fascinating. Is that... Um... Uh, the Benedict Option, were you referring to, Roger? Yeah, which again, when that book came out, it got a lot of flack. And I read it and was like, oh, it's good, but really dour. And it's so funny, I just reread it this last year with a bunch of my friends, you know, three, four years later. And culture has gone so much crazier since the Trump election and yeah. since the far left and since all the, you know, gender stuff that all of a sudden it just made like, it sounded like perfect sense. It's like, yeah, that's exactly where we're at. You know, it sounded like this really harbinger of doom. And now I'm like, yeah, that's basically life right now. So I need to read and, that. Uh, I've, I've been dying to read. I've been intrigued by the idea. Um, and I'm not sure. I don't know what to think. I, I, <clears throat> Well, it's not the kind of book you read and agree with everything. Sure. So The Benedict Joshua by Rod Dreyer, and then even better, very similar, but even better, um, though less Christian, is Why Liberalism Failed by Patrick Deneen, one of the most influential political books I've ever read in my life. And it's not about politics, like partisan politics. It's about political philosophy and how we got here and what's the future. Very two Harbinger of Doom books and two very intelligent books. Um, in particular, Deneen's work is just, if you're not familiar with him, Google Patrick Deneen, D-E-N-E-E-N. -E -E he's a political philosopher from Notre Dame. I think he's a conservative Catholic, though he doesn't talk as a religious person, so I'm not sure. And you can listen to podcasts and interviews with both of them. And, you know, Deneen's harder to understand because he's wicked smart. But his thinking around this is hyper influential on how I'm thinking about this. And neither of them hold out much hope for the future. So, wow. you know, David Brooks and others would be more hopeful for the future. Um, and I don't know. That's just over my pay grade. All I know is that I think for whatever the future of the church is, it's either back to a rigorous discipleship, neo-monastic, communal kind of life, or it's obliteration on the right or the left. Because the right is corroding faith right. just as much as the left is now. So, you know, the old stereotypes are breaking down. Yeah, for me, because I came from the right, I would even say far right, I sometimes take for granted that that's kind of a bankrupt direction. And that's why more recently, because I have on the on the spectrum in my life trajectory it was like far right, moving more left and now just moderate right now in my I don't know, let right of center, I don't even I don't love those categories at all. But um, to me, sometimes I forget to even critique the far right, because it's just so self-evidently um, yeah you know but, that, but it's just Lost. my context yeah. too uh, so some people that weren't raised in the far right 
maybe only critique, critique the far right because it's it's more fresh. Yeah, so much of it's your context. Again, I don't even think about it because I just don't. It's just not the world I live in. Right. You know. Yeah. So the church moving far. I mean, I, I am interested in this. I don't know. I mean, it sounds so basic, so just like New Testament ish, but that the church does need to be intentionally countercultural on, on, on several different levels. You know, even take something like sexuality. We think that the church has a conservative sexual ethic, but we've basically adopted a secular sexual ethic and added one little footnote, wait until you're married. You know, that's it. But yeah. we still have the same view of uh, our, our weddings look the same. We spend the same amount of money. There's no sacramentalism yeah. in, in our weddings. And then even, I mean, if you look at the right and the conservative, I mean, I'm not sure that it's all that different sex ethic other than some of the views around gender and gender, totally. you know, stereotypes or whatever. But as far as like premarital sex, I mean, yeah. I don't know that it's any different on the right than on the left. Statistically, you know, it's and, not and, even. But but even if we say, no, don't have sex till you get married, we still have a very secular view of sex. It's a, it's the same yeah. view of it's... It, it's largely for pro- pleasure. Procreation is yeah. sure if you want, you know, but there's no problem. Stop. I mean, how, how was I raised for all these years without even raising a moral question about separating sex from procreation? Like that, that's just nothing. Yeah. But- how did that not even come into that? It wasn't even a question. Yeah. <laughs> that's like one of the most basic, like scientific things that. And nobody even really had the option to separate those things right. until, you know, our parents really. But because we can, therefore it's morally right. And it's like, what kind of ethic? It's just, it's bizarre to me how, how blindly we have adopted. Um, so do you, have you rethought your theology of birth control? Yeah. Um, not, not completely, but, um, do you have podcasts I can listen to on that? Or what's the, what's the cliff notes version? I'd love, uh, that's been I like might, an open question. I, my, it's like, I feel like the way about birth control that I used to feel about nonviolence, like before I studied it, <laughs> yeah, totally. like I, I don't really, I don't really want to study it. Cause I'm afraid that I'm probably <laughs> wrong, but nobody around me is questioning my theology. So I'm just going to yeah. stay in my bubble. I, I don't have it totally ironed out at all. Um, but I, I just, I wonder if the Catholics have, are more right than, than wrong. Um, here's where I'm at now. If, if a Christian couple said we want to get married, uh, but we don't want to have biological kids, not can't, not infertile, but like, you know, we're going to take steps to not have biological kids. I would say the, the moral burden rests on you to justify that position. I can't just say, Oh, cool. That's totally fine. I would say I would at least raise the moral question, justify that morally that, you're going to separate marriage from having kids. You're going to have sex. You're going to get married. And that vocation, that calling is disconnected from kids. It at least convince me of that. Don't just assume that that's totally fine. That, that's where I'd be at right now. I wouldn't say it's immoral necessarily, but I would. Um, I yes. think we just need to think more deeply about haphazardly separating sex from procreation. Now, that raises questions. Well, you know, what, what if you have eight kids, you know, or nine kids, you know, like the health of the mother and is there ever a place for family planning within, I mean, yeah, yeah those are all really and urban centers and cost of living. And yeah, totally, totally. I, I just, I, I think that, I don't think we realize. But again, I mean, sometimes I wonder, are those just the people like hearing a biblical theology of nonviolence and being like, yeah, but what? Like North Korea would take over America and we'd all be speaking <laughs> Arabic, you know, like, like, you know, people, they don't want to have the conversation. So sometimes I wonder, am I that person? And I'm just right. like, well, yeah, but I'd have 13 kids and my wife would be dead. And right. you know what I mean? And, and I wouldn't be able to afford anything. And, you know, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I definitely don't think that, Genesis one, the blessing, be fruitful, multiply is a, is a binding command in perpetuity. I, I, I can't get there exegetically. 
but it does seem like to go against that you're going against the natural trinitarian biological flow of life in mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. that god created the trinitarian god created man and woman to come together to you know to go from otherness to union and then to spill out in trinitarian love which requires a third which requires a child so that yeah. that flow of life of not being one person but coming together as two and then creating a third yeah. in order to move from egoistic kind of narcissistic control to agape which is the spiritual journey that i mean that impulse like to go against that feels like almost like you're going against the trinitarian flow in you you know that's beautiful man no that's that's exactly that's exactly but right. i could be wrong yeah. and then but then my question is like but once you've had a child yeah <laughs> do you have to keep having children or and does that mean all have to i mean i don't are I mean, there I other ways that- to let the trinitarian flow through you and your marriage mm-hmm. you know with, I think Jesus models that at some level. I, I do think there is some discontinuity between marriage and procreation in the Old Testament and in the, the New. For instance, in the Old, I mean, you have laws set up to where if, you know, your, your brother dies childless, you have yeah. to go have sex with which his is, wife. Which, is, ra- a, which <laughs> is a beautiful law. Right. <laughs> Well, seriously, I'll, I just, I just, I just taught that on was that. Probably inappropriate, but, I oh. just taught on that two days ago. Actually, Did you? I, I, I taught on Jesus' line of the Pharisees about that. I mean, I, that's actually a compelling act hmm. of social justice for women and care for women oh, in yeah. that day and age. Yeah, and I, that, see, that's it. I think there is there are certain social structures and differences back then that aren't here today, and how yes. much of those commands were intertwined with the social structure that doesn't and really apply to the agrarian economy, you know what yeah. I mean? And that's one of the big, I was chatting to a therapist about this recently, and just saying one of the big challenges for parenting parents now is that in an in a urban information economy, children are a burden. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're a drain on the family's resources. They don't contribute. They're not needed. And so that creates not only narcissism in the kids, but it actually creates low self-esteem. So why, you know, why does the suicide rate highest among teenagers and elderly people? Most people say it's because they're not contributing in any way. And there's a fascinating psychologist I read recently. who basically said that zero to three self-esteem is a function of unconditional love. But after that, self-esteem is basically a function of contribution to a social group, meaning from the time you're like in kindergarten on, you basically feel happy and good about yourself, not just from unconditional love from your parents, but actually from contributing something to your family, your church, your village, your tribe, your whatever, and just helping out. And this is why, you know, like kids that come from big families and live on farms tend to be the happiest, most well-adjusted, least narcissistic people I know. There's just something about that, you know, that does good to the soul that kids growing up and, you know, but more like my kid's life just really struggle to become those kinds of people, you know? So there's, there's a, it's a massive parenting question I'm asking right now. How do I artificially create for my urban kids, middle-class kids, what they would have had if they were like one of 10 kids on a farm and had to get up and milk the cows every morning. How do I artificially create that? That's actually the question I'm asking as a parent. Oh gosh. I ask that question almost every day. I know. Cause I mean, we live in Idaho where there's a big farming community. So we still have a residue of some of that. You can tell the difference between teenagers that were raised on literally raised on a farm or still on a farm versus those that are, you know, and do you see a similar effect, like a positive effect on their, their personhood? They're kinder. They're less selfless. They'll stop. And um, um, it's not uncommon for 
um, if you if you're broken down or something for somebody for a teenager, I'm mean, this is a true story. We were camping last summer, and one couple blew a tire, didn't have a spare. You know, we were two hours from the from the city, and these two teenage boys that were just out fishing basically devoted their entire day to, to driving this guy around, trying to find a camper that had an extra tire. Um, I was going to give you know an extra tire for my car it didn't fit, so then we found this old broken down car that. And and they were kind. They were just um, and yeah, they were just good old good old, yep, good old boys, you know. Um, and they didn't even think it, you know. And these were teenagers, like, and they just gave up on themselves. And yeah, they were literally like, yeah, we're, hey, where are you from? They named some community that has like population seventy eight or something, you know. Um, yep. Yeah, I don't know. It's so it's so hard to duplicate that in, in the rhythms of life. But um, you know, it's funny. We just so we just had we have a, a community group. We call it Simple Church that that meets. Um, every other week and and our group has six families and each family has about three or four teenagers mm-hmm. so it's a really interesting community group with loads of yeah, teenagers I would imagine. and uh, we have a big basement in our house and this last sunday night typically the kids are off to, like playing games playing ping pong hanging out doing whatever running around and then the adults are kind of praying together whatever and we keep saying like we need to like not let, let's bring it together so we we bring all the kids up and instead of like sharing prayer requests my, my wife throws out a question. She she said, it was all quiet. And we're like, hey, I got a question. What do you guys think about abortion? <laughs> like, have you, and the kids, they all lit up. They all had strong, well thought out opinions, both from the like the pro-life side to like, what about the shame that covers the person that actually gets an abortion? In other words, like, yeah, I've been, we've been talking about this in government and I have no place where I can kind of like, express my opinion i'll get screamed at or whatever and they were they they were i've never seen these teenagers so engaged because they were contributing to the conversation to the group but it just goes back to your point that that idea of 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 actually feeling like your your role is meaningful like you have something to contribute this community we need you not not just we love you we need you right yes gosh and how to duplicate that in white middle class iPhone saturated. <laughs> well, dude, it's coming up on an hour. We should probably start wrapping things up. Um, well, man, I could chat to you for hours. You're always such a delightful hang. Thanks for having me on and letting me ramble. Dude, my pleasure. So I want to mention, let's see, let's, uh, I got your, uh, um, okay. Yeah. So the ruthless elimination of her year's latest book, your one before that God has a name. Um, the one before that garden city work, rest, and, I can't see this. The up art here. of being human. The That's art. okay. You don't need to hawk my stuff. It's okay. Dude, it's good. Your You're titles it. kill you know? it. And then Loveology <laughs> and, and others. Um, are you working on anything right now? Can you talk about it or no? Are you done for a little bit? Um, yeah, I don't know that I sh- I don't know if I'm allowed to now. Yeah, I actually have already written the next book. So, um, are you serious? Yeah. No. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think you're supposed to kind of keep it on the DL. Yeah, no, the next one's already written. Yeah, ready to roll. Can you talk about the to- what the topic is or no? That's totally fine. I get um, it. Well, I, I don't want to, I don't even know. If, well, yes, I, it's, um, it's, it's a weird book. It's totally different. It'll probably sell three copies, but I think it's by far my most interesting one. It, um, it is an attempt to take the historic ancient church category of the world, the flesh, and the devil, oh, yeah. and to update it for the kind of secular, educated, really? post-Christian worldview. That's so it's talking about the world, the flesh, and the devil through the lens of post-Christian, secular, yeah. sophisticated America. <laughs> uh, John, thanks so much for being on Theology in the Raw. We'll have, to, have you on again for a third time sometime. Thanks, man. It's always a pleasure. 